So thank you, JC, for that really fantastic overview of all of the things that people are doing to advocate for animals right now. Uh, I also want to thank the organizers for putting on this conference and everybody for being here and for having me. This is so awesome to be speaking in front of this rainbow wall <laughs> at Google. Um, and also, this is my first time meeting a lot of uh, the people here, and I want to say that everybody has been really friendly and welcoming, and I expected that, but I also really appreciate it, so thank you for that. Also, everybody here is really smart, uh, which I expected too, but like really frighteningly smart. So uh, I feel honored to be able to address this crowd. Uh, so my name is Jeff Sebo, and I advocate for animals primarily through education. So I currently teach philosophy at UNC Chapel Hill. And before that, I worked in bioethics at the NIH and in animal studies and environmental studies at NYU. Uh, and I also work with a few different nonprofits that promote animal studies and animal issues, including Minding Animals International and the Animals and Society Institute, which I definitely recommend checking out. Uh, so why do I do what I do instead of other potentially useful things? Uh, well, I thought about that decision in a way that I think many of you will be familiar with. Uh, back in college, I read Animal Liberation and became enlightened, and uh, I thought, given how important this issue is and how few people are working on it, I can probably do more good if I advocate primarily for animals than if I advocate primarily for other groups. And I picked education because I thought that since we need to see a lot more popular support for animal rights before we can bring about real change, to say nothing of support from the wealthy and powerful and incredibly intelligent uh, people, uh, I could probably do more good for animals if I work primarily through education than primarily through other, say, legal or political paths. So who knows if that was the right decision, right? I think things are going pretty well so far, as far as I can tell. Uh, but you never know what will happen tomorrow or next year or 10 or 100 years from now, and you also never know what might have been. And for a consequentialist like me and a very anxious person characteristically like me, that kind of uncertainty is really terrible. <laughs> uh, I wish I could be a little bit more confident that I was doing the right thing, uh, but I also think that it would be a mistake to trade the discomfort of uncertainty for uh, the comfort of certainty. So I have this lofty goal for myself. I want to spend my time and energy and money doing the most good I possibly can in the world. I want to maximize happiness and minimize suffering for all sentient creation from now until the end of time. Uh, and of course, I have no idea how to do that. So what I actually do is I wake up and I walk my dog and I eat some cereal and I catch up on email and go to the office and teach and write, maybe go to an event, come home, watch TV, uh, watch more TV and watch some more TV. In addition to the lofty things, I watch a lot of TV and play a lot of video games. And I spend more time than I maybe should making rap music that nobody listens to. Uh, so it remains to be seen how all of that will contribute to animal liberation. But I trust that everything will come together in the end. Uh, anyway, so I do that. And I have to take what I hope is a kind of rational leap of faith uh, every day and trust that this really will contribute to a broader movement that will help animals. Uh, and so that sense of uncertainty and that rational leap of faith is what I want to talk with you about today. I think that if we want to do the most good that we can as a movement, then we need to consider not only the individual uh, evaluable effects of our actions, but also the systemic, less evaluable 
effects of our actions and that that will require us to embrace certain indirect uh, utilitarian values like uh, humility and toleration and pluralism a little bit more than we sometimes do as a movement. So I think the question is, how can we do that in a balanced and responsible way? And what I want to try to do in my talk today is offer a few provisional thoughts about how we might push in that direction. So as you might have seen from uh, JC's talk, effective animal advocacy, which exists at the intersection of effective altruism and animal advocacy, is at a fairly early stage in development right? Uh, and is being very helpful so far. So for decades, animal rights ad, uh, activists were mired in fairly unproductive discussions about tactics, right? Abolition versus regulation, revolution versus reform, intersectional versus single-issue activism, and so on and so forth. Uh, and for the most part, those debates have uh, remained unresolved, in part because people were very speculative in conversation with each other. So it helped a lot that effective altruists have entered those conversations and allowed us to make a little bit of progress by bringing some much-needed scientific and philosophical rigor to those discussions. So, for example, Nick has written several books about how to bring about incremental behavioral change. Uh, many academics are working on these issues, too. Meta-charities like ACE and GiveWell are investigating these issues. And thanks to all of this work, we know a lot of really useful things now. So, for example, we know that uh, donations in support of farm animals are likely to be much more effective than donations in support of animal shelters. And we also know that if you want to persuade somebody to participate in Meatless Mondays, then you should be very friendly and professional and uh, celebrate or at least congratulate them for their decision to incrementally reduce their contribution to animal suffering in the world. And that will have the desired effect. And I think that everybody here will agree that this has been a really big step in the right direction. Right? But also, and of course this is completely understandable and expected given the young age of this movement and the enormous complexity of these questions, we right now have that kind of appropriately rigorous analysis about only a very small part of a much bigger picture. Right? So yes, we know which of these three or five or ten charities will save the most lives per dollar per year given certain plausible assumptions, and we know exactly how we should socially present ourselves if we want to persuade people to reduce their contribution to animal suffering in the short term. Uh, but while this is really enormously useful information to have, and it really is, I feel very grateful that we have it, it does not yet tell us what we actually want to know which is what we should do, all things considered, if we want to bring about the most happiness and the least suffering in the world in the long run. And if we want to answer that question, then of course we need to keep pushing forward. Right? We need to expand and extend our analyses along multiple axes. Right? We need to consider the full range of options available to us as advocates. We need to consider the full range of expected effects of each of those uh, options, both from our individual and aggregate and collective behavior. We need to consider the full range of social and political and economic perspectives that might affect how we collect and interpret that information. And of course, we also, all along the way, need to figure out how the hell to decide what to do insofar as those mind-bogglingly complex analyses are incomplete or inconclusive. So for an example of 
why it matters that we do this, as well as what makes it hard to do it well, think about my area, which is education. So I believe, uh, and of course I would believe this, so please feel free to take this with a grain of salt, I believe that animal studies uh, as an interdisciplinary field has the potential to do an enormous amount of good for animals. Every year, animal studies programs expose faculty and students and community members to information and arguments about animal exploitation, and we do it in the kind of sustained and rigorous and communal way that I think is more likely to result in lasting behavioral change. But of course, the good that we do, if we do good, I hope that we do, is necessarily very long-term and very indirect, right? What we want to do, our goal, is to participate in changing the hearts and minds of the next generation so that we can bring about a more just future society, right? And how we go about participating and bringing about uh, that end is, well, we write papers and we teach classes and we organize conferences with fancy lighting and so on and so forth, right? So you can appreciate why if somebody was evaluating our work based primarily on the uh, measurable impacts of this particular conference or this particular class, they might wonder why they should support this work instead of other worthy things, right? Why the hell should I give you thousands of dollars so that you can organize a bunch of people into a room where they can talk to each other and eat snacks with fancy lighting when there are so many animals dying right now who I could be saving with that money, right? And I think that makes a little bit of sense. Of course, we have a response. We think that our work is an investment in bringing about the kind of long-term structural change that will actually help animals in the long run in a way that might not be possible if all we ever do is keep saving animals against the backdrop of our current social and political and economic structure. But of course, that prediction is very difficult to confirm or disconfirm about any particular program with our currently available toolkit. And if we have that problem with education, which I think everybody agrees plays an essential role in social movements, then you could see how we would especially have this problem with other more controversial approaches to activism and advocacy, such as more radical or confrontational approaches like some of the ones that JC mentioned. Right? Now, I believe, based on my research and experience, that this kind of approach has a very important role to play in social movements too, including this social movement. So the kind of people who take this approach when they do it in a pragmatic and strategic way uh, through protest and civil disobedience, even nonviolent property destruction in some cases, they help us clarify what our end should be and how we should get from here to there. They expose us to incredibly useful information and impactful stories. They shift the center of debate and pave the way for moderate reform and so on. But the good that they do, like the good that we do, but even more so, is necessarily very long-term and very indirect. What they want to do is build a broad coalition of social movements that will really uh, affect structural systemic change in the long run in a way that liberates everybody, all animals, human and non-human alike. And how they do that is, as JC mentioned, by going to Chipotle and uh, shouting at people about how this is not food, this is violence, in a way that will, of course, yes, predictably, uh, alienate and offend some people in the short term. So again, you can see how if somebody was evaluating this action based primarily on the measurable impacts of this particular action, 
they might wonder, why should I take this approach instead of another approach that is more likely to result in good effects, right? Why not instead have a nice, friendly conversation with someone about why they should participate in meatless Mondays or eat cage-free eggs so that they can really actually reduce their contribution to animal suffering? Now, as with us, the uh, radical activists who engage in confrontational tactics have an answer to that question. They think that uh, consistently giving a clear message that animals are not here for our consumption is a really important part of eventually creating uh, a liberated society that does not regard animals as objects or commodities. But again, this prediction is difficult to empirically confirm or disconfirm with the resources that we have available as a movement. Now, I want to be clear that I am not suggesting here that these approaches, including my approach, are clearly right. They might be right. They might be wrong. Uh, maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle. Maybe all of these approaches have a role to play in a, bro a broad pluralistic movement, and we should make a few tweaks to each one to make them more effective. Any one of those things could be true. All I mean to be saying here is that if we truly want, as effective altruists, to have an objective, uh, unbiased picture of how to do good in the world, then we need to find a way to extend equal consideration to all of these different perspectives and approaches. Uh, otherwise, two things will happen. First, we will continue to have uh, a biased and incomplete picture of how to do good in the world. And second, we will continue to have a reputation in the broader social community uh, for having a biased and incomplete picture of how to do good in the world in a way that will limit our ability to expand as a movement. Right? Uh, I think there are a lot of people who share our sort of uh, impartial, benevolent goals and pragmatic approach to realizing those goals, but who have different views about how to do that, who should be natural allies for the effective altruism and effective animal advocacy movements, but who currently feel skeptical about and uh, marginalized by these movements because they basically perceive us to be a bunch of rich people who would much rather treat the symptoms of oppression than address the root causes. Right? Some people even identify EA with uh, this exclusively reformist approach and dismiss the entire movement as a result, which is, you know, suboptimal. Uh, so when people make these accusations, I think members of this community usually respond in one or both of two ways. First, we say, no, 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 you misunderstand. In principle, effective altruism is open to any approach that might actually do good in the end, right? And that could be moderate approaches or radical approaches or building an army of killer robots so that they can cure cancer, which I learned is maybe a thing today. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you show me evidence that this will do good, then I will say that EA favors that approach. And, and this is the second response, in the meantime, I think it makes sense for us to continue to support this kind of incremental progress, both because we know that this does at least some good and because incremental good begets incremental good. If I make some vegans, they make some vegans, they make some vegans, and then we have a world full of vegans. And I think that these responses make a lot of sense as far as they go, but I also think that if we really want to adequately address these accusations of methodological tunnel vision, as well as appear to have addressed them so that we can expand our movement in productive ways, uh, then we need to say and do a little bit more than that. And I, I think that about both of those responses. So first of all, 
if our methodology really is currently biased in favor of measurable impacts of individual actions, then we need to do more than wait for more evidence to roll in uh, and then respond accordingly. I think that we need to proactively confront and address possible social and psychological uh, forces that might be pushing us in the direction of maintaining the status quo. And those could be coming from any number of directions, right? Uh, it could come from our history as a movement and the resulting inertia. It could come from our demographics as a movement, which are not exactly representative of the general population, as wonderful as everybody here is turning out to be. Uh, it could result from our self-narrative as pragmatic and this association we have between pragmatism and reform and between idealism and revolution, even though that might not always line up. It could come from observational biases, like the streetlight effect, which is basically the tendency to look for answers where they are easier to find, like looking for your keys under the streetlight because the light happens to be there. And of course, it could come from the natural human tendency that we evolved like 10,000 years ago to care more about immediate identifiable effects rather than uh, less immediate, less identifiable effects. And if one or some or many or all of these forces really are conspiring to push us in the direction of maintaining this methodological bias, then I think that we need to actually be kind of aggressive in terms of counteracting them so that we can achieve a truly unbiased, objective picture of how to do good. And with respect to the second response, it's often but not always true that incremental good begets incremental good. And to think that it is is like thinking that you can always get up and over a mountain simply by making sure that you always take your next step up when, and I have no idea because I don't climb mountains, but people have told me this, that uh, actually sometimes what you need to do is take 10 steps down in that way so that you can take 30 more steps up, or sometimes what you need to do is blow a hole in the damn mountain so you could walk right through, although I think you should have a good reason to get to the other side of the mountain in that case. Um, and the radical critique of moderate approaches is similar. All else equal... Making more vegans is fantastic, but, radical activists worry, there is a limit to how far we can go with that approach. Eventually, you also have to address the structural systemic forces in society that cause people to exploit animals. And that will require a significantly messy and complicated and indirect decision procedure. It requires not only doing risk-benefit analysis based on available evidence, but also doing something much more uh, socially and politically complicated. And by the way, this is a point that the utilitarian moral philosophers whose work uh, developing an impartial and benevolent and rational moral theory has inspired both the animal rights and the effective altruism movements understood well. Uh, this is why John Stuart Mill, for example, argued in On Liberty that if the state, if a political community wants to maximize utility, then yes, it should spend some of its time engaging in risk-benefit analysis, but it should also spend some of its time investing in characteristically liberal and indirect utilitarian values like humility and toleration in the political community to make sure that everybody can perform experiments of living and adopt a division of labor and uh, challenge dogmatism and have dogmatism challenged so that we can collectively make much more progress in the long run than we would have been able to do if we simply right now impose our current conception of the good on everybody. Right? I think Mill was right to say this, and I think that we can learn something from that. So with the minute or so that I have left, I want to conclude with a, a few concrete 
provisional recommendations about how we might start to counteract some of those forces. First, I would love to see us expand our methods of assessment as a movement. And that means considering not only quantitative sources, but also qualitative sources and systems-based approaches and history and social and political and economic theory. I think for a good example of this, uh, you should check out the essay that JC recently published on the ACE website about the strategic value of confrontation as a tactic, which draws from exactly those sources in exactly that way. Uh, I would love to see more work in that direction. Second, I would love to see us expand the scope of our assessments. Right? So we might not right now be able to perfectly reliably compare, say, philanthropy to uh, property destruction in terms of efficacy, but we might be able to make useful comparisons within each category. Right? So in the same kind of way that we can say, this charity will save more lives per dollar spent than that charity, we might also be able to say, for example, nonviolent property destruction followed by a professional communique is more likely to cause more good and less harm than nonviolent property destruction followed by a grainy and shaky video posted to YouTube set to emo music. Right? <laughs> and I would love, by the way, to see a randomized control trial about that. So if somebody could please do that, that would be fantastic. Uh, third, uh, and this is the final point for now, I would love to see us really take positive steps to address possible sources of bias in this movement during this formative time in its development. And I think that that will mean certain concrete things. It will mean really investing time and energy now in promoting diversity and inclusion and pluralism in this movement uh, by centering historically marginalized voices in this movement. And it will also mean some people, at least some people, taking this kind of rational leap of faith and spending their time and energy and money on approaches that do seem to be an important part of overall movements, but about which we might have a little bit less measurable evidence than other approaches so that we can have a really holistic approach to doing good. So those are provisional suggestions. I offer them with all due humility, given the theme of this talk. Uh, I would love to talk about some of these issues further. Now Nick is going to talk uh, to us about some of the really exciting things that people are doing to reduce animal suffering in the world. Uh, and I hope that those case studies inspire you to get involved in the movement. And as they do, I hope that you also keep in mind the need to at least think about how we can expand and extend these assessments so that we can have this fuller picture of how to do good. So thank you very much.